Shalom everyone, today we're going to explore a very important Hebrew word, the word for I, which in Hebrew is Ani. We're going to look into some of the mysteries and layers of this word, and we're going to see how it sheds light on some of the biggest riddles there are, the riddle of consciousness, the riddle of self-actualization, the mystery of the self, and so on. I'll be reading to you from the latest Points to Ponder column for the weekly Torah portion of Tetzaveh, and I'll be adding some explanations as I go along. So let's dive in. Our experience of the self is one of the most perplexing things there are. On the one hand, there is nothing we experience more directly and with more certainty than our self. On the other hand, uh, the deeper we enter into this experience, the more it becomes confusing, the more it slips between our mental fingers. What exactly does is the self? Where exactly does it begin? Where does it end? Are we really something distinct and unique, or are we but a collection of traits, memories, and desires? A similar problem arises when we attempt to actualize ourselves or apply the common advice to just be you. For some reason, the more we attempt to be ourselves, the less we know who we are and what exactly we are meant to actualize. Why? Is it so complicated to understand and to realize, to actualize who we are, to discover the mysterious, elusive I, the self, that hides within us? This week's parasha, the weekly Torah portion, is called Tetzaveh, and it touches on this exact point. Since the opening of the book of Exodus, which heralded the birth of Moses, Moshe, and the beginning of his leadership, his name, Moses' name, appears in each parasha, each parasha except this one. It is the only parasha since the beginning of the book of Exodus that doesn't mention Moses' name even once. Why is this so? So according to the Jewish sages, the absence of Moses' name is really a kind of retroactive fulfillment of a request that he will make in the following weekly portion called Kitisa. And it takes place in the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. Moses asks God, And now, if you forgive their sin, and the implication is then, then all is well. But, the verse continues, If not, erase me now from your book. This is Exodus 32.32, easy to remember. Eventually, God does not, sorry, God does forgive the people, and therefore he doesn't erase Moses' name from the Torah. But nevertheless, because the request has been made, he wants to fulfill it in a kind of symbolic way, in a kind of measured way. What he does it, what he does is that he makes sure that there's one parasha, one portion, in which Moses' name is not mentioned at all, and this is our parasha, Tetzaveh, one parasha before the story of the sin of the golden calf. Now, even though Moses' name is not mentioned explicitly throughout the parasha, it would be wrong to say that Moses himself, as a character, is not present in the parasha. He is very much present. He is present in the very first word of the parasha, which is the word you, ve'ata tetzaveh. In fact, the entire parasha addresses Moses in the second person. So it says, and you shall command, and they shall take to you, and you shall bring near to yourself, your brother Aaron, and so on and so forth throughout the entire portion. 
Now, there's something interesting in Hebrew grammar. In Hebrew grammar, we call the second person point of view, we call him the present voice, the present person. This is opposed to the first person, which is known as the speaking person, and the third person is known as the hidden person. But the second person, the one that is present before me, to whom I'm speaking, is called the present person. So from this it follows that in this parsha, while Moses' name is not mentioned at all, he is not referred to in the third person, in the hidden person, he is constantly referred to only as you, we can say that in a way he is the most present. He is present in absence. He is present by not being mentioned by name. He is present in a more concrete way. When I talk about someone uh, versus when I talk to someone, then when I talk to someone, that someone is more present right in front of me than he is when I'm talking about him and he could be very far away. So this is very interesting. So Moses, uh, the name has disappeared. The name is like his image or his reputation or his description, his descriptive properties. All these are gone from this parasha. This is really like the external uh, descriptions or properties of someone, the characteristics, but not the actual person. The Moses self, his true self, who he is, his essence, is present in this parasha more than in other parashot because he is referred to in the second person. He's constantly there. So in a way, we have the first idea that we want to go into is that once his name disappears, and we can all think about ourselves also, that our name is not the does not reflect our innermost essence. Our, our name is like something we put on for other people for other people to speak about us in the third person. But when our name is gone, when what we associate with ourselves is gone, then our actual self, our true self, can maybe shine forth more strongly than it does when we make a name for ourselves or our name is in the center or we're mentioned, we're referred to all the time. So that's the first, the first idea that we have from this parasha. Now let's go deeper. One of the most beautiful phenomena in the Hebrew language is that the very, very commonplace word, ani, which means I or I am, is composed of the exact same letters as another word, uh, this time a very deep, very mystical, very rare, very interesting word, which is ain. Ain is the same letters as ani. You just flip the second, it's three letters long, both of them. If you take the last two letters of ani, you flip them, you get the word Ein. And Ein, what does it mean? It means nothingness. Ein is the opposite and absence of Yesh. Yesh means existence or what exists. So Ein is a state of non-being, of absence. But because God is, God is very much real, He exists, He is the ultimate Yesh, the ultimate entity existence uh, even more real in a way than this world. This world is a kind of projection of, of, of godliness, the way he reveals himself to, the, to what is not God. But So the, despite the fact that God is very much real, because he's deeply unknowable, very in the, like the ultimate mystery, the ultimate uh, elusiveness, we also refer to God as Ein. So Ein is not just nothingness, Ain is also 
godliness. It's also God himself is referred to as Ein because we, at, at the end of the day, we don't really know anything about him, about his essence. It's infinite. It's, it's unfathomable. So, and this reflects in several uh, Hebrew phrases. So, for example, when we talk about creation, something from nothing, right? In Latin, it's called ex nihilo. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called yesh me'ain, something from nothing. So, the, the usual interpretation is that the world is something, and before the world existed, there was nothing. So, God created the world, something from nothing. There was first nothing, then something came along. But if we realize that the word ein is not just nothing or nothingness, it's also God, then yesh me'ain, something from nothing, becomes that it means something else. It means that the world was created out of God, out of godliness. From within the divine ein, the divine nothingness, came forth this very concrete world. Um, there's another phrase. The phrase says, ein, this is same letters as ein, same order also, but different vowels, different uh, punctuation uh, points. The way the Hebrew works is we have the word, and each word can be read in many, many different ways, depends on the punctuation vowels that are not letters, they're little sort of dots, markers. So the, there's a word which is ein. Ein means there is no. So there's a Hebrew ver, uh, phrase says, Ein mazal li Israel. If you're part of the people of Israel, or if you're connected to the essence of what Israel symbolizes, then you don't have a mazal. A mazal is a zodiac sign or a constellation. Meaning, if you're connected to the essence of what Israel is, you're not, your fate isn't governed by some constellation or by some zodiac sign. It's your fate is determined by, by something higher than that. So again, the phrase is Ein Mazal Israel. There is no zodiac sign for Israel. But the Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidic movement, he said we can also read it as Ein Mazal Israel, meaning there is a kind of spiritual force governing everything associated with Israel. It's not that you don't have anything governing him. There is something governing them. What is this something? It's the divine nothingness itself that governs the, 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 this thing called Israel. Now, so on the surface, the two words, ani and ayin, made up of the same letters, but they're really total opposites. The ani, the I, is something very tangible, very clear. The ayin, on the other hand, is something hidden and ethereal. The ani is the earthly, mundane, created person, whereas the ayin is the heavenly creator of all human beings, and so on. But in fact, if we go deeper, there are many connections between the two words and what they stand for. So let's look at them. So the f- one connection, first connection, is related to the mystery of consciousness. In some way that we do not yet comprehend and very, may, very well may not ever understand, consciousness resides, awakens, uh, exists in some way inside the human brain. The human brain is a physical, objective entity. But somehow, inside it, if we can talk about the inside of it, if we just open up the brain and we can slice it up, we can scan it, you don't find consciousness. You just find more and more neurons, more and more neural neural networks, glands. There's electrical activity, chemical activity, but it's all physical. But somehow, in this physical object, there resides the subjective experience of 
consciousness. So in a way we can say that there is a point of ein, of nothingness, where the, let's call it the dimension of soul, intersects with the physical dimensions of space and time. I'm using dimensions because in the, in the book of Yetzirah, the book of formation, the earliest Kabbalistic book, then that book describes reality. It's very fascinating. That book describes reality as made up of five dimensions. Three spatial dimensions that we all know of. Everyone has known about this for many, many thousands of years. This is the, basic, the basics of all geometry. The fourth dimension is the dimension of time that also we know today, but it, it was very much a late addition to the concept of dimensions. It, it basically was added, physics added the temporal dimension to the spatial dimensions in the 19th century. And then with Einstein, they became like one space-time, one four-dimensional fabric or whole. But according to Sefer Yetzirah, and this is maybe future science, uh, there is a fifth dimension, and that is the dimension of soul. Now, each dimension, so it's a, that's a big thing in and of itself, it's an important, very important, dramatic even statement to make, and we can talk about it some other time. By the way, in the 19th century, there was someone who proposed this, and this is in the book Flatland. You can read it. If you go all the way to the end of this book, a very nice little book about dimensions, at the very end, it's, it, it proposes the idea that consciousness is a fifth dimension. So all this was said thousands of years ago in the book of Yetzirah. It's very interesting. Now, when each dimension, when it intersects with other dimensions, that intersection point is just a point, and a point is dimensionless. It doesn't have width or breadth or depth, and it's basically like nothing. It's a point of nothingness. So the brain is a four-dimensional physical entity. It takes up space and time. And it's physical, but because the soul interacts with the brain in some way, then that, that point of interaction, uh, which apparently is spread out across the brain, um, that metaphorical point is like a point of nothingness. So the, 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 the brain is a yesh, is a physical entity, but inside it there's a kind of ein point, and that ein point becomes the ani, the ani consciousness manifests in the Ein point of the brain. So that's one deep connection. Now there's another connection between Ani and Ein. Human beings are the only beings that have language sophisticated enough to use words. And because there are all kinds of ways of communication in nature, but they're not nothing coming close to language that we have. And so we are the only creatures that have the word I. And apparently there's no real self-consciousness in animals, maybe some of them a little bit, but again, no comparison to us. And so we are able to say I and mean it, right? Today we have an artificial intelligence. They also were, they use the word I all the time. If you talk to Chad GPT, he'll, he'll answer and he'll say I. But he's been programmed to do so. It's not a real, he's not using that word consciously. So when we say I, that we are the only creature in the world that can say, I, ani. We are also the only creature in the world that's able to at least begin to comprehend God, the divine Ein. So this is another phrase we can play with. In the morning prayers in Judaism, one of the things we say every morning is, the superiority of man over the beast is Ein. So the simple meaning that we all think about when we read this phrase 
is that we ultimately we don't have any superiority over the beasts. We all perish at the end, just like the beasts. So, it's part of this whole paragraph that comes to remind us that we're, we're finite and we're, 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 everything we have is like a blessing. We should be grateful. We don't really have anything, all our wisdom, all our bravery. It's all, uh, all given, God-given. So among this we say, the, the superiority of men over the beast is nothing, nothingness. But we can also read it as saying that there is a real advantage, a superiority that humans have over animals. We can grasp the concept of the divine Ein. So the superiority of man over the beast is Ein, the capacity to perceive Ein. So we're the only creature that can say Ani. We also goes together, and Ani is the, the opposite of Ein. It's like us, our ego, as opposed to ego, by the way, in Latin just means I. Ego is I in uh, I am uh, in in Latin, so um, the 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 we are the only creature that says ani. We're also the only creature that is able to grasp somehow the concept of nothingness. Um, let's add one more thing to this. There's another word that sounds very much like ein. It's a little bit different. It starts with a different letter, and that word is ein. And when you write it in English, you just put a little apostrophe before the A. But it sounds totally different, especially if you're coming from Arab-speaking countries. And it's, it's definitely a different letter, different sound. Instead of Ein, it means Ein. And Ein is an I. So that's beautiful. In English also, in English, the word for I, E-Y-E, and the word for I, the letter I, sound absolutely the same. In Hebrew, it's close. The word for Ein... Um, if you don't come from Arab-speaking countries, you would it would sound exactly like Ein, nothingness. So in, in English, it, the word for I sounds like I, I am. In, he, in Hebrew, it sounds like nothingness, which is made of the same letters as Ani, which is, which is me. Now, why is this interesting? So the I is considered the window to the soul, right? It's like the place where our I, the... The, our sense of self, our eyeness, is projected outward the most. Where you look into someone's eyes and you can feel that the, the, their soul is there somehow. It, it, it projects outwards through their eye. Now at the very center of, of the eye, of each eye, there's a black pupil, total, totally black. It, that This is really the window. It's a window for perceiving light coming in. So this is like the point of nothingness. This is the Ein, within the Ein, which is connected to our Ani, our sense of I, our self. Um, in Hebrew, that word for pupil is called Ishon. Ishon's, ishon means little man. Why? Because if you look into someone's eyes, you see yourself reflected as a little person. By the way, English also, the word pupil is etymologically connected to the word puppet. And uh, Pupa in Latin, a puppet is again a miniature simulacrum of a person reflected in each eye. Um, it goes with the Hebrew word buba, which is again like puppet and pupil and bavat ein, if you know some more Hebrew words. So the, all, all this is sort of get, coming together to really tell us that the, the eye, again, the physical eye, each eye is a reflection of ourself, but within each eye there is a point of nothingness. 
that's where we sort of let go of ourselves. We put ourselves on the side. We 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 not, we're not focus, focusing on ourselves. We're just opening up to to receive light from the world. We're really making room for someone else. This is why the pupil, the ishon, is called a miniature person. It's like we're we're including within ourselves something of the other person. We're opening up to to the other person. So when we are able to take our ani, our self, and turn it into an ayin, a little bit, uh, um, put ourselves on the side and dimin- diminish ourselves and become nothing, then this makes room, it opens up uh, for the other person. The, uh, the other person's sense of self, the other person's ani, to come, in, come into our world. But now, so, but th- all this is still not the deepest connection between the Ani and the Ain, the self and nothingness. And, but the deepest connection, that's most relevant to this weekly Torah portion, Tetzaveh, is connected to the Hasidic concept of Bitul. Bitul means either you can translate it as nullification or as selflessness. The idea of bitul, really the ideal of bitul, it's a Hasidic ideal, it's very, very basic in Hasidic writings, is that um, there, it says that the rectification of each person depends very much on him nullifying himself to something greater than himself. Ultimately, basically, we all need to be mevutal, to have bitul in relation to God. God created us, gave us life, he sent us into this world, and we need to be his servants, and we need to nullify ourselves to God. So in, in many, many ways, the idea of bitul, of, of, of nullification, is that we're supposed to take our ani and turn it into ein. So now if you just look at the letters I said before, you just need to switch the last two letters. But let's focus a little bit uh, in a more high-res picture. The... The we can just talk about the last letter of ani is yud. Yud is like a little point, like a point of nothingness, right? Dimensionless point. Yud is the smallest letter, and if you abstract it, it becomes like a little point. In the word ani, it's the last letter. In the word ein, it's the middle letter. Now, this letter really represents God. It's the first letter of God's four-letter name, yud ke vavke, the tetragrammaton. It's a little dot, which means that it's like ein, like nothingness. And it's the only letter of the entire letters of the Hebrew alphabet that is sort of floating mid-air. It's, sort of, it's, it's the only letter that doesn't touch the lower, the lowest um, uh, sort of row, the line of the, of the notebook that we're writing on. It's just, it floats there. It's like something transcendent. So in the word ani, this divine letter is sort of pushed to the end. You postpone it, you push it all the way to the end. So, I'll get to God at the end. That's basically what it means. But if you take that letter and you put it at the center of who you are, between the Aleph and Nun, that's the other two letters, then you become Ein, you become nothingness, you nullify yourself to God. It's a very beautiful idea. Also, by the way, then, if you, in that order, Aleph, Yud, Nun, Ein, uh, this is the, the that's the order of the letters. Ein is the first letter, uh, Nun is uh, the fourteenth letter, and Yud is the tenth letter. So they, uh, Aleph Yud Nun 
means that they're in order. So it's it's almost like things are falling into place when the ani becomes ein. When you're able to take your ani, yourself, and say, I'm not the center of everything. I'm not deifying myself. This is ultimately what we do when we are uh, egocentric, when we put ourselves at the center. So moving from egocentricity to selflessness is transitioning from ani to ein, taking the divine litter, instead of putting it at the very end, putting it at the center of our being. Now, unfortunately, this whole concept of bitul isn't properly understood today. Many people think it's a kind of erasure of the self, a cancellation of the self. In Hebrew, in modern spoken Hebrew, the word levatel means to cancel. And so it's, it doesn't have a good you know, sound to it or vibe to it. So when people hear that in Hasidut, uh, it's a very basic thing to have bitul, then they think, oh, but I don't want to cancel myself. I don't want to erase myself. And maybe in English it's, it's very similar because the way it is, nullification also may sound uh, not a very good thing. Um, but in fact, it's not what bitul is. Bitul is that you don't, you don't cancel yourself, you don't erase yourself. The idea is that you um, focus on something bigger than you and you give, over, you give over yourself to this something bigger. You sort of invest yourself in it. You immerse yourself in it. And until it's, you're sort of distracted from who you are, you don't think about yourself so much. You, it's like when you really go into a book or a movie, you forget about yourself. You lose yourself in this grander, greater thing. So being mevutal, having bitul towards God means not that you're erased, God forbid. You were created in order to be your own special you. But in order to be your own special you, you have to let go of your ego. Your ego is a kind of mask or a distraction from who you really can be. So you need to transcend your ego. And you do this by uh, not just working on transcending your ego, because then you're still obsessed about your own self. You don't think about yourself, not even in terms of I don't want to have a self, or I don't want to have an ego, or I want to transcend or get rid of my ego. That's a beautiful, perfect way to preserve your ego and expand and enlarge your ego by telling yourself that you have no ego anymore. This is sometimes what happens in sort of some New Age circles. But here, you really don't think about yourself. You think about God. You think about God's words and His will and, and His essence and his, what we know about Him, what's described about Him. And you lose yourself in that and you become part of something bigger. That's the idea. In halachic, in Jewish law, there's something called batel b'shishim, that if a small quantity of something is put into something that is more than 60 times its size, then it becomes mevutal. It becomes batel. It's less than 1 over 60. And it's not erased. It hasn't dissipated from the world, it hasn't disappeared, it's just part of something bigger. This is what Bitul is. So in Tetzaveh, this is, it comes across very beautifully. So as we saw, Moses' name does not appear, but he himself appears very much. He's pr- more present than ever in a way. And, and what is the word Tetzaveh means? It means you shall command others. In this parasha, Moses comes into full leadership in a way. How do we see this? Because he's taking, he's, he's, he starts giving roles to other people. This is in many ways the pinnacle of being a leader, is that when you appoint other leaders, he's taking his brother Aaron 
and his sons and all the future priests that are going to come out of them, all the future descendants, and he turns them into priests. And so he's so, in a way, dedicated, so immersed in his mission, in his role, in his purpose in life, that he becomes like, uh, like, like God's extended arm, just part of something bigger. He reaches this state of bitul, of nullification, of selflessness. Why? Because he, he has a mission. He has, he has work to do. He says, I don't have time to deal with myself. And that really reveals to the world his highest kind of selfhood, his highest kind of self by forgetting about himself, by saying, well, what is it I have to do? I need to be a leader. I need to appoint other people to be their leaders, to be priests. And he goes fully into this. Then his name is erased temporarily. His name, he, again, he forgets about himself, but his true highest self, his, his uh, uh, purpose is, is finally revealed and actualized. So we, we should all really learn from Moses. We need to discover what our role in life is, what our mission in life is, what is our shlichut. We need to be emissaries of something higher than ourselves. And once we discover what our mission is, we need to devote ourselves to this mission. And if we do this all the way, and we, we're not thinking about making a name for ourselves, or becoming famous, or getting credit, we don't think. We just want this, the work to be done. We want what it is that we came into the world for to be realized in the world. And so the more we do this, the more we immerse ourselves in just like Moses, then we, our name sort of disappears from our minds because we don't think about ourselves. But we really achieve true self-actualization and true self-realization. So this is our thoughts for this week's Torah portion. And I hope you liked it. And I hope you have a very beautiful Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, everyone, and thanks for watching. If you like this video, please leave a comment. I'd like to hear what you think. Also, like, subscribe to the channel, share the video with your friends. And if you want to help me make more videos, please consider becoming a supporter via Patreon. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you.